Every week we're reminded that we live in difficult days. The challenges we face seem to crystallize around names like Breonna Taylor, Dr. Fauci, Biden, or Trump, or you fill in the blank with the name of someone that you love and care about. The responsibility to be faithful followers of Christ has never been more complex as we kind of navigate through all these different storms. I can't help but think of the image of the disciples caught in the furious squall out on the Sea of Galilee panicking as the rough waves threatened to swamp their little boat and Jesus is just sleeping in the stern and in desperation they finally wake him and Jesus just simply says, peace, be still. And the sea immediately becomes calm as bathwater. I mean, I wish God would take care of all of our problems just like that. I mean, instantly gone. I wish it were that simple, but I don't think that's what God is doing. God uses everything for his purpose. Even the bad stuff God uses. I believe God is using this time to sift his church, to strengthen and purify his people, to find out who's really committed to Christ and his kingdom and who is only along for the ride. That's what affliction does. It purifies God's people. So this is where my heart is today. I've, I've always wanted to be part of a church that makes a difference, that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, serves him with great energy and biblical faithfulness, a church that pursues God with both intellectual integrity and emotional fire, a church where people matter, where people feel accepted and can encounter the living God in life-changing ways, where people find hope a home of healing and friendship and meaning and purpose where people realize that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or even what you're going through right now, God is real and he loves you and he has a purpose for your life in serving him daily. A church that's just a family of ordinary people but whose lives are being transformed through Jesus Christ. A church where the power of the risen Christ is at the very core of who we are. I've always wanted to be part of a church that doesn't settle for what's comfortable or predictable. A church that doesn't focus on why not, but on, on what if. A church that has dreams where people are willing to roll up their sleeves and then do the hard work to make those dreams come true. A church that's bursting with life and wisdom and vision. A church filled with, with the laughter of children, the energy of teenagers and young people, the, the dedication of adults and the maturity of senior saints. I've always wanted to be part of a church that sets a good example, that shares its resources and its heart and its hands with others locally and globally, a church that actually cares about the poor and the suffering, that cares about injustice and racism, and then actually does something useful about it, the kind of church that God sees as beautiful. We are looking at just that kind of church in our message series, working our way through the New Testament book called The Acts or The Actions of the Apostles. Those first followers of Jesus, they forged a new community of faith called the church, the ecclesia, which means the called out ones, those who responded to the call of Jesus. They are our role models uh, for how to follow Christ in difficult and often a hostile world and how to do it with energy and imagination and love. But here's the thing. Instead of being a generation that only reads about church history, let's be a generation that makes church history. What if we completely trusted God even in the middle of a pandemic? What if we actually took Jesus' words seriously, actually lived boldly the way that he wants us to live? How would a church like that look like? 
How would it look like, how would it look out at the world, or how would we then see our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, our friends, our cities, our opportunities, our resources? What if we were a church that took action, that doesn't just talk about love, but really acted on love? The passage you heard read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, it really captures kind of the essence of what made the early church tick. It's kind of the go-to passage about the basics of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about, the DNA. Remember, the church was born into a hostile world, and it was as vulnerable as a little child. No influence, no money, no power, yet so vibrant in its simplicity, it's kind of like childhood itself. They went into the world with joy. They were vigorous and flexible long before the church kind of became overweight and short of breath through prosperity. Its arteries clogged with theological and bureaucratic cholesterol. They were open to God in a way that seems almost unknown today. There were only 120 people gathered in that upper room on Pentecost, and historians estimate there were about 4 million people living in Palestine at the time. That's a ratio of about one follower of Christ for every 33,000 people. I mean, have you ever felt outnumbered? And that was just in Palestine. doesn't include the rest of the Roman Empire. Plus, they lived in this callous culture where the entire economic system was based on slavery and brutal oppression, where literally thousands of gods competed for people's attention. Thousands. I mean, have you ever thought it was tough for you to, to follow Christ? It's amazing that the church not only survived, but it thrived when active persecution and torture became a reality. What was their secret? What was their strategy? How did they grow and prosper while living in enemy territory? Well, there were four essentials mentioned in this passage and two results. Four essentials, but they're all interwoven, so it's actually hard to separate them out because they all work together. They work together to make this vibrant early church. And they're timeless truths that we need to embrace for our season of serving Christ today. The first essential, a commitment to and a love for the apostles' teaching. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Those who were with Jesus as his disciples are now elevated to the role of apostle. And they recounted Jesus' words and preaching to the rest of the church. Remember, there was no New Testament yet. Not at this stage. It, it's too early. Nothing had been written down yet. That comes later as Jesus' words and the apostles' teachings gets recorded for posterity through the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, uh, James, Jude, and the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews. There was no Christianity without the apostles' teachings, and that's now recorded for us in the New Testament. There is no growth in the spiritual life without the inflow of that teaching through Scripture. It is the commitment to study, absorb, devote yourself to the teachings of the apostles that makes the church the church. Without the centrality of the apostles' teachings in the Bible, you can have groups of people having all kinds of interesting religious conversations, but that's not the church. If we hope to be a church for the future, then we have to remain committed to the authority of the New Testament and our devotion to studying it in the life of the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was hung by the Nazis right near the end of World War II, he once wrote that revival of church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of Scripture. A richer understanding of Scripture. That is the first essential. Second is fellowship. After the apostles' teachings comes fellowship. 
which is not standing around, uh, you know, in the church sipping coffee and eating a donut while having small talk. That can be a subset of fellowship, but it means so much more than that. Fellowship means a commitment to the people, a personal commitment to each other in the Christian community. Just as we make a commitment to scripture, we also make a commitment to people. It means developing your relationships that, that strengthen your faith and then where you have relationships where you can strengthen the faith of others. It's practical encouragement and support, acts of caring and comfort. Think of all the things that uh, we think about our, about our deacons and the way that they care for people. But it's not just the deacon's job. Uh, it's for everybody. The deacons are just called to specialize in that kind of congregational caregivers. Love one another. That's what Jesus said. Love like I love you. Love each other. Well, that's for everybody in the church. And so that means we love sacrificially and personally. That's the second. A mutual expression where you encourage others and they encourage you, which means an investment of time. Spending enough time with people to earn their trust and to get to go deeper into life, into their life issues. Always asking, you know, what does Jesus have to say about this? Where is God at work in your life? So fellowship is that second essential. For the third, I'm going to kind of lump a few things together. The breaking of bread prayer from verse 42 with praising God from verse 47. I'm going to clump these together as just worship. If the apostles' teaching is the engine of the church, worship is the gas. The early church met primarily in homes, in small groups that could fit in a patio or a courtyard or an upper room. Their gatherings were called love feasts because it often involved a meal, and the meal included the celebration of the Lord's table. The kind of prayer mentioned here is corporate prayer. It's the church at prayer together, their sights together set on Christ alone whom they worshiped. Christ always took center stage. And so in worship, we begin to see God for who he really is. In worship, we understand his power and his presence. Worship puts our lives into proper perspective as we uh, see ourselves and all our problems now from God's point of view. We're to serve him, surrender our desires, surrender our needs to him, embrace difficulties for him. In worship, we're not spectators or drama critics. In worship, we have an intimate connection with the living God through prayer and praise and worship. The fourth essential, financial sacrifice. In verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Their lives were so changed by Jesus that they, instead of saying, How much do I have to give? They asked, How much more can I give? They approached their money as Jesus instructed with open hands and not closed fists. Actually sounds like socialism, except they weren't advocating an economic system. They were not asking the government to take care of people or to forcibly redistribute wealth. They were voluntarily responding to the real needs of the people in their newfound fellowship. They loved each other so much that they made a commitment, we're going to take care of each other. A commitment. Those with more made a commitment to those with less, and they did it out of love, not out of compulsion. I'm intentionally not using the word stewardship here because the word often just gets associated with a yearly you know, church budget campaign. In the book of Acts, they didn't have a budget. They didn't have an organizational chart. They didn't have stewardship. They didn't have a campaign. What they had was the Holy Spirit changing people. And so they gave sacrificially with no tax benefits. 
because they were committed to the cause of Christ. So those are the four essentials, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, worship, financial sacrifice. And those four interwoven elements produce two results. The release of the Holy Spirit to the apostles to do signs and wonders. And we're going to read some of those in the following uh, chapters in the next few weeks. And the second thing was new life. New disciples, God adds to their number as they love each other and faithfully preach God's message of grace. Their fellowship was infectious. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The Holy Spirit entering human hearts and people turn to Christ. And in turn, then they become part of this vibrant body called the church. Well, why are these essentials? Because without a commitment to studying and obeying scripture, you can think you know everything. Or conversely, you can think you know nothing. And both are traps that make you ineffective as a Christian. Nothing worse than a Bible know-it-all who actually has huge blind spots in their understanding of Scripture. Or you think you know nothing and you kind of constantly feel discouraged in your walk with Christ. We have to make a personal decision to study Scripture. It will keep you humble and will also keep you from feeling defeated all the time if your mind is set on God's Word. Without fellowship, you begin to feel alone. And then you're more easily targeted by the evil one. It's kind of like how wolves hunt an elk. As long as the herd stays together, it stays strong. The wolves will try and cut an elk out from the herd, and then it's easy prey. Fellowship multiplies the strength of each believer. Fellowship multiplies the strength of each believer. And without worship, your problems become bigger than God. Worship and prayer, they help us to right-size our problems, help us to tap into the power of God's presence. Praise and prayer and the sacraments, they all bind us together as the body of Christ. And then God releases his spirit onto the church, and the result is new life in Jesus' name. When God has his proper place in the hearts of his people, there are no financial problems. God will provide, and he will do it through the generosity of people truly committed to the cause of Christ. And so those four things, they make up the essential DNA of the church. And they've always been true for Christ Church, regardless of culture or language or race or place. But how those four things are applied in each culture, each language, each race, each place, that has to change and has to keep on changing. I mean, we don't read the Bible in Latin anymore, as was done for centuries. That was a human tradition that did not help advance the kingdom of God. So we have to be able to distinguish between the things that are permanent and the things that are only temporary. And unfortunately, we often get emotionally attached to the things that are temporary. And that's when the church turns into a museum that honors the past but has no future. So if we're smart, smart enough to stick with the essential DNA of the church, what things will have to change for the church to remain effective, uh, an effective witness as we're moving into the future? Well, I believe the COVID crisis is shaping the future of the church by accelerating what was going to happen eventually anyway. The COVID crisis is sort of a kick in the pants to churches to pay attention to the way our world is rapidly changing so that we can kind of continue to stay effective in living out those essentials. So here are just a couple thoughts about the future church. First, Sunday-focused churches will need to become Day, everyday focused churches. I mean, I love Sundays. I believe in public worship. I believe Sundays will continue to have a vital role in the future. I can't wait until we're able to gather again with all our church in our building. I mean, trust me, in-person uh, worship is going to come back. 
but it can't be the only thing or even the main thing that the church does anymore. And this is an area where I think we're doing okay. We've already have a vibrant and healthy small group approach to discipleship, from children and youth club to teens and online small groups and salt small groups to over 30 groups for adults. I mean, even before the COVID crisis, most of these groups were not meeting on Sunday morning. We're not a church that's restricted to only a few hours, one day a week on a Sunday morning. That's why I love the New Providence Presbyterian Church. We're not perfect, but I think we're really making progress. And I think we already know that the most important ministry often happens outside the walls of the church. We're going to have to embrace that even more. Until the COVID crisis, most churches have been analog organizations in a quickly becoming digital world. The closing of church facilities has forced thousands of churches to finally show up online show up to do worship, to preach, to pray, to offer fellowship, to even offer the Lord's table as we do. Churches, small and large, have had to establish an online presence or they just really went out of business in the last six months. There is and was no other option. And that online presence should not end when the COVID crisis ends. We must adapt to the digital world and see it as a blessing and a great tool God can use as we share His grace. Not all that digital spaghetti is going to stick to the wall. I mean, people are already getting fatigued of too many screens too often. I think our students are struggling to learn, and they may burn out on that online approach. I don't know. The teachers definitely too. So the jury is still out on exactly what digital tools will continue to be useful for communicating the good news, but having a digital presence will no longer be optional. But, and this is big, the idea that we can go back to Sunday morning with a few midweek group meetings and an odd inspiring quote on Instagram is already a thing of the past. The future church, at least the future churches that actually reach unchurched people, will no longer be an in-person gathering with a smidgen of online thrown in. If people in our community live every day in need of the hope of Christ, in need of resources to find faith, uh, then as the church, we have to start coming alongside those people every day. And the best way to do that will be online. That won't go away when things go back to normal. There will be a new normal. And it's going to involve the seamless interweaving of the digital and the analog, just like life in our regular days today. So the second change will that churches will have to begin to hire staff for online ministry like it's a real ministry, because it is. Now, if you're a baby boomer like me, this is hard to understand because we are not native to the digital world. We, or at least I, I feel somewhat out of place using online tools for ministry. I'm doing it, but it doesn't feel natural. But in the future, the, the people the church will want to meet, it will be natural for them. And so we need to be able to speak their language. So the church will have to hire staff to lead online church. For years, Christian leaders have debated about whether online church, you know, counts, because many argue that, you know, online isn't real. But now we, uh, that's kind of like asking if online counts. It's sort of like, uh, like Sears asking if Amazon counts. I mean, right? I mean, who's out of business? Not Amazon. Suddenly that conversation seems more real than ever. Of course, online counts. To be clear, just because real life counts doesn't mean online doesn't. And just because online counts doesn't mean real life does it. They both matter. Here's the problem. Most churches spend anywhere between 90 and 100% of their staff dollars 
on in-person experiences with only a few exceptions. Even in the largest churches, the vast scarcity of resources given to online is really staggering. What usually happens is that the website, streaming, social media gets tacked onto the already full-time job description of the youngest person on staff who may not be any good at it. Studies I've read suggested that in the future, churches will spend up to 50% of their staffing budgets on online ministry because everyone the church will want to reach and influence is online. Now that seems really high to me, but what do I know? What's kept a lot of church leaders from truly embracing online ministry or expanding online ministry? Well, it's been one thing, main thing. They worry about a drop in physical attendance. Honestly, most pastors are judged by the number of butts and seats. How many people in worship this week? That's the question they're always asked because it's one of the few things that we can actually measure, butts and seats. And so we keep score by how many people physically attend church. Many pastors have worried about the internet because they're afraid that the more people rely on online church, the less committed they're going to be to local church. They're afraid it will just kind of feed that consumer mentality, the, the church shopper mentality that's already weakening the church as people kind of jump from one church to the other, kind of treat the church like a buffet table of spiritual services that they, that they pick over. Local pastors are afraid that if someone's going to watch online, church online, then why not watch Andy Stanley or your favorite hot preacher du jour? If everyone goes online, then who really needs the local church? That's been the fear. What's needed is a strategy that kind of seamlessly merges in-person with online experiences. So people might, for example, take a class online that will then lead to in-person contact, that an online event will then lead people to get involved in a local hands-on mission outreach. You see, it won't be an either-or strategy, either in-person or online. It will have to be both, a both in-person and online. They will have to work together. New people will check out a church online long before they ever enter the building. People will join online groups long before they're ready to meet in person. People will experience caring online before they're actually ready to welcome personal caring into their lives. If we continue to behave like the world doesn't live online, we will miss the very people that we say we want to reach. Now, there are a bunch of other things I could suggest. Uh, greater racial diversity and a serious commitment to, race, to racial conversation, for one. Uh, more of an emphasis on local mission, for another. Smaller home-based house churches, for a third. But I just want to close with this last one. Digital giving will become the new default. The COVID crisis definitely accelerated the move towards digital giving. Churches who only relied on passing the plate during a worship service really had to scramble to add the option of digital giving. Thankfully, we already had those options in place, and now we see how valuable a tool they really are. The reason digital giving is important is that most people do all their bill paying and banking online. I mean, I rarely carry any cash anymore, and I bet neither do most of you. And writing checks has all but disappeared. Yet in many churches, that's still how they ask people to give. If churches don't offer digital options, they'll make it almost impossible in the future for people to give. And in the future, digital giving is, will, will be what will fuel generosity. Well, the theological DNA of the church should always remain the same, but the methods we use will always be changing. We have to take our passion for Christ and our heart for people and put those two things together in new and exciting ways. 
We should be more confident than ever because our confidence is in God and the needs of the people are so great. This is the time for our church to kind of rise up and mobilize a generation that will make a difference, to meet people where they are, to serve them in ways that, that matter to them and point people to Jesus. And in doing so, we will see despair turn to hope. There is no textbook here. Everybody knows that nobody knows exactly what to do. We are all navigating uncharted waters. I'm just glad we've got Jesus in the back of the boat. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we live in challenging times, but it's also the time for us to rise as your church to meet those challenges with creativity and imagination and love, Lord. To serve and to seek people, Lord, in new ways, to use all the tools that we have available to us. But Lord, help us to remain committed to those essentials, to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to worship, and to uh, generosity. Lord, help us be committed as a real body of Christ, not, not a club, not the YMCA, not some kind of social organization, but the church where people love you and love each other as you instructed. Give us that passion and that vision. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.